Grove. A special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Boyan. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This show is created to give a voice to former pro players and personalities, allowing them to share some of the greatest stories this game has to tell. So let's take a trip to the heart of the classic hockey universe and celebrate the history of the game with the select few who actually lived it. Episode 64 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast features Alan Globensky, a feared enforcer with the WHA Quebec Nordiques in the 1970s. In the early 70s, Globensky was a member of the incomparable Montreal Junior Canadiens, where he served as a popular and self-described goon on a Memorial Cup winning squad that featured Hall of Famer Gilbert Perrault and perennial NHL All-Star Richard Martin. Allen was selected by the Minnesota North Stars in the 1971 NHL Draft and eventually signed with the Nordiques in the fledgling World Hockey Association. Incidentally, Allen's first coach in Quebec was a legendary Maurice Rocket Richard, and Alan shares some fascinating insights into this revered hockey legend. With the Nordiques and their minor league affiliate in Lewis in Maine, Glebensky was a reluctant gladiator who experienced the seamier side of hockey, a world of mayhem, bloodshed, and borderline insanity that made the iconic movie Slapshot tame by comparison. We'll talk about the wild brawls and toe-to-toe matches with some of the 1970s toughest players like Dave Hutchinson, Paul Stewart, Steve Durbano, and many more. Now back then, Globensky fought because that's what he was told to do, and it was the role the team wanted him to play. Allen is still battling, but now he's fighting to maintain his quality of life and to encourage former teammates to seek help if they're concerned about their mental and physical health. Allen's new book, A Little Knock Won't Hurt Ya, is easily one of the best hockey books I've read and I highly recommend it. I call this book Slapshot with a Soul. In this well-written memoir, Allen is brutally honest and refreshingly candid about the ups and downs of his life as a hockey enforcer and the dark days he experienced thereafter. And I'll give you a spoiler. This story has a happy ending. The link to ordering Alan's book is in the show notes. So, what happened to Alan Glebensky, the former cult hero, after the cheers of bloodthirsty fans faded away? This is his story, and it's one that's both compelling and cautionary. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Alan Globensky. Well, we're real happy to have on the show today a former Quebec Nordique and a player who has just written a book called A Little Knock Won't Hurt You. And it is one of the best hockey books you will ever read. It captures hockey as it was in the 1970s. But as I would describe it, in the opening of the show, it's like Slapshot with a Soul, because while the book does talk about Alan's career as an enforcer in the pro ranks, 
It also talks about the downsides and talks about fear, talks about injuries, talks about family repercussions, good decisions, bad decisions, the whole thing. So you'll find this book to be valuable if you're a hockey fan, and you'll find it just from a life standpoint, a valuable book. And that's a long way of introducing our guest, Al Glebensky. Al, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. That's a very nice opening for me. I appreciate that. The book starts out in an unconventional way. It's not a necessarily starting out in a linear fashion of your career. It does talk about some heart-wrenching stories that you have, and that goes from your professional career as a firefighter in Maine, just uh, uh, heartbreaking stories you tell there. It also talks about the uh, sudden passing of your mom, the adjustments you have to make as a child and your family. It's, as I said, it goes far beyond hockey. And all of those things kind of plant the seeds for your eventual career in pro sports, which had a duality to it, the potential to play in the Canadian Football League, and then eventually playing with one of the greatest junior hockey teams of all time, the Memorial Cup champion 1970, Montreal Junior Canadiens. So I guess jumping ahead a little bit, because we're going to backtrack a little bit later, but talk to the fans a little bit about the decision that you had to make and how you eventually came to sign with the Junior Canadians. Well, I think it had a lot to do with being 17, 18, and getting money offered to you to actually do something that, at the time, I didn't mind doing. I thought that uh, it was a future that may hold something for me, but I was still totally dedicated to football. That had been my life. That was my life. And up at that time, I decided, well, hey, I'll take a chance at hockey if they're going to pay me to do this. And um, It's not that I didn't enjoy, but sitting on the bench wasn't what I had entailed. I, I would have liked to get out there more, get more confidence, and become a hockey player. But hockey was so different back then. There were only three lines. Uh, I think the NHL was just introducing mass violence at the time. And um, it just, it got crazy for a while. It was literally uh, borderline insanity. That was one of the uh, titles of the book we had thought of. So <laughs> it was nuts. It was. Now, the interesting thing is you're playing with a team with the likes of Gilbert Perrault, Richard Martin, uh, Jocelyn Gavemont, Bobby Lalonde, Ian Turnbull. This is a, a extremely talented team you find yourself on. So how is it for you psychologically? For, you're obviously, they bring you in for toughness at that point, and your skill level perhaps is not where your teammates is. So how is that as far as your confidence is concerned? As you're saying, you're not playing a lot. The fans are clamoring for you in these situations where they want to see retribution against the opposition, you're not necessarily, I think your approach to fighting was basically the, the way it was, the code basically sticking up for teammates. Now you have the fans chanting your name. You're with all these great stars. You're not playing much. Just curious about your your mental state at that point uh, as far as your confidence was concerned. Well, uh, not that hard to explain, I guess. My ego became as big as the Montreal Forum, uh, <laughs> hearing your name chanted to get out there and do something. But as you said, obviously my talent was nowhere near 
anybody on that team's talent. But I thought if I got some playing time, I could build up some confidence. I could figure out what I was doing and, and maybe become a good third-line player and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But throughout that season and the next, I had trouble with management and coaching, which was the name of, I guess, my whole career I had. That was my own worst enemy. And uh, But I always wanted to play. I did not great, but I did well in the minors. I played. I, I fought. I scored. I passed. I, uh, and I, I felt good. But when they dragged me back up, I'd say, look, you know, if this is all I'm going to do is grow up and fight and get back on the end of the bench after I get out of the penalty box, sorry, it's not going to happen. And uh, back then, they just couldn't get the message. Nowadays, I think they fully realize, and it's changing in a great way. Yeah, and I think you've noted uh, some instances in disagreements, et cetera, with coaches, but they all kind of stemmed from the same basic philosophy. Back then, as you said, violence was rampant in the game, and they some coaches had you there just simply for that one single reason, and when you resisted to being used in that uh, in that way, you stood up for yourself. So um, it probably says more about you that you had some disagreements and, and controversies with coaches than rather than just uh, trying to placate them mindlessly as you went on. Uh, going back to the, the hockey for one second, Alan, back in that 69-70 season, you talk of a game that I frankly should have known about but had not remembered. And that's a, a game where you brought in Mark Tardif, Rajon Uhl to your already strong lineup with Gilles Perot, etc. And you face off against the um, Soviet national team with goaltender Vladislav Trachiak, the best of the best from the Soviet Union, and you basically blow them out. Uh, so can you recall that game a little bit? That's a game that's kind of been lost in history, at least for me anyway. Unbelievable. Uh, talent-wise, it, it was, as you said, the, the people you named just overwhelmed the Russians. And as a matter of fact, when, when uh, the Canadian national team or the pick team by Alan Eagleson was chosen... Um, there wasn't a, there was a few of those names, Gilbert Pro being one, but he wasn't being played, and he came back from Russia uh, for that reason. And uh, the Russian coach was, was amazed. He says, "Look, these guys were some of the best players we ever played against, and and they're not playing or, or even on the team." So it it was it was something of a you know. A, a wherewithal, but here's the interesting thing, Mark. I'm leaving the forum at the end of the game, about an hour after the game, maybe three quarters, and there's a whole Russian team running around the Montreal forum with their sweatsuits on, talking uh, just like, hey, that's uh, that's the price we pay for losing. You know, not mad, not upset, not angry like any North American team would have been had that been placed on them. So that was very interesting to mm-hmm. see. Well, it's an interesting perspective for yourself and your teammates and fans who witnessed the game because, as you noted, just a few years later, that team would surprise and shock the hockey world with their strong performance against Team Canada and would set off a series of battles, international battles with, with the Soviets. But going in that memorable season, of course, you end up winning the Memorial Cup. En route, you do a great job of describing a rivalry, uh, unprecedented rivalry between Montreal Junior Canadiens and uh, the Quebec Remparts who have Guy Lafleur on the team. So as you set it up in the book, it's it's a battle between, it's not even in the finals, but it's a, a Memorial Cup playoff battle between yourself and Quebec 
And the subplot to all of it is a battle between the two big stars of junior hockey at the time, Guy Lafleur and Gilles Perot. And Gilles prevails in this one. Can you talk a little bit about that matchup? Well, it, it you could see it in, in the dressing room the couple of weeks that led up to this tournament of playing against the Ramparts. Uh, Bert was, was getting more and more upset that, that all of a sudden this kid comes up, he's getting all the press, and uh, I'm a pretty good hockey player. I should be acknowledged too. Now, Lafleur was a year younger, had scored a whole lot more goals in a much weaker league at the time, but Gilbert decided, hey, we're going to show people what's going on. The opening face-off, dropped the puck, boom, 10 seconds later, we're up one nothing. Now, by the third period, at the end of the second period, they had overwhelmed us. When they scored a goal, all 8,000 people in the building stood up, locked arms, and started swinging and saying in French, the ramparts are gold. I think it intimidated us. At the end of the second period, we were losing by a couple of goals, and I hadn't played, and uh, I remember Hartland Monaghan and Ian Turnbull there, and they were sweating and uh, you know, talking, just, we're getting killed, you know, we're just getting murdered out there, and I looked, and I said, uh, what, look at Bert, we're going to win this game, you watch, and they were, what are you, crazy? Sure enough, Bert went out in the third period, scored a couple of goals, a couple of assists, we end up beating them. Now, um, in my mind, and obviously I'm biased, Bobby Orr is a great player and, and uh, was one of the best. But Gilbert Pearl going to Buffalo, who had nobody until the next year, and then even that scored 500 goals you know, with, with not a real strong team. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always said, had he been drafted by the Canadians, Wayne Gretzky would still have to be playing now to catch his <laughs> records. So... But that was part of that unbelievable, you know, and again, best seat now is just watching these guys go back and forth. (laughs) Well, as we noted, the team does go on to win the Memorial Cup, and you come back the next year and get a chance to develop your skills. You you set up a another great story. There are so many great stories. It's not only the, the stories, but how they're told in this book. And one of them is with regarding Dave Hutchinson. Now, Dave, as our fans know, is a notorious, he was a good hockey player, but a notorious mm-hmm. tough tough guy as well in the National Hockey League and the World Hockey Association. And, but when you talk about the brawl that ends up you two, with you two fighting, it's multidimensional because it's kind of the, the prelude to the brawl, you, you prevailing in it, but you suffering an injury, and then there's a like a confrontation in the dressing room and then kind of almost a reconciliation as you both end up in the hospital. It's such an interesting story about battling together, battling somebody, then kind of having almost like a code of honor and respect. But at the same time, this whole incident, I don't want to tell the whole story, but you end up with a lot of fear because you have an injury that could possibly cost you your entire career. Could you recount for the fans just that whole incident with Dave Hutchinson and the repercussions of it? Well, I, I think um, a whole lot of it w- was built up in a couple of games previous to that where Dave had not sucker punched one of our players, but got into a fight and pretty much uh, dominated and whatnot. So I was aware and at the time thinking, okay, if he gets on the ice and I'm never on the ice, I'm going to watch for him. And I just happened to get on the ice for a short shift and somebody was coming out of the penalty box 
for the London Knights, who Dave was playing for. And he got a pass from somebody, and I just buried him right back into the penalty box, which was not the cleanest check in the world. But mm-hmm. um, all of a sudden, Dave came on me from the side, and I saw him coming and just threw an uppercut. I'd been taught when I was young how to box and, and so knew that. Plus, I was left-handed. Now, as soon as I hit him, uh, he went down, and I looked down at my fist and realized, wow, I, I can see all the way to the bone, never mind the cartilage or anything else that covers, and this doesn't look good. They took me into the infirmary at the forum, and I'm sitting there, and the doctor's looking, and a couple of seconds later, they bring Dave in, and he's got a, a bashed-up mouth. He's got some teeth that have moved around, and he's trying to get at me, and I'm faking it, but trying to get at him, because now the pain starts to come, and I'm feeling it. So they send him off in the ambulance. They take my skates off and send me up to the hospital in a taxi. Um, They look at it in the emergency room, and this is a Sunday night now, and they go, "Um, we've got to get a specialist in here because we don't know what to do with with this finger. So they send me up to the fifth floor, and I'm sitting here minding my own business, and every time the bell rings around the corner for the elevator, I'm looking over to see, is it the doctor, or you know, is he here yet? And all of a sudden, on one of these dings, uh, around the corner, and I'm not, my, my uh, contacts have been knocked out in, in the brawl after, and I see a player in a London night uniform, but I can't tell who it is, um, coming toward me. Then I realized, wow, it's Dave Hutchinson. So I, my hand was wrapped in, in all sorts of gauze, I stood up, grabbed the chair next to me and said, you're going through this because I can't <laughs> He sat down next to me. We talked for probably half an hour. And uh, I, I literally, I felt really bad that he had to go in and have some teeth corrected and whatnot. But that, and you said it best, um, when a fighter and another fighter got into it back then, they had that mutual respect. Uh, There were very few cheap shard artists, guys that would go around sucker punching people or, you know, jabbing them in the back and and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. uh, we got to talk, and it was very interesting. Talking about that... that that story itself is probably worth the price of the book. It was it was very well told, and as you said, it just underscores that mutual respect under some pretty insane conditions. Another dance partner you would have had back then is another uh, player who's notorious. It was uh, Steve Durbano, and we we've had so many guests on the the show. We've we've, we've talked about Steve uh, with you know Paul Gardner and Robin Burns and guys who who played with him over his career. You were against him on the other side, and I, you may have even been teammates at some point. But the question is, uh, what were your impressions of Steve Durbano? Uh, I guess as a as a fighter, as a person, as a hockey player. I didn't, unfortunately, get to know him as a, as a person very well, Mark. But uh, as a fighter, I had to have had at least 12 fights with him in two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never won one, but I never lost one. The only person who gained were the trainers when we had to go back <laughs> and either get 
fixed up or sewed up or whatever. But uh, again, when when the fight was over, uh, it was okay. You know, you did your thing, I did my thing. I do remember running into him once. We were early at the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs Garden. We were bringing our equipment over to put in a dress room and go back to the hotel. And Steve had a job uh, as cleaning maintenance person in the Maple Leaf Garden. And uh, he was out sweeping one of the aisles. And as I went by, I realized this. And we nodded to each other, said hello. And that was it. That was the only verbal contact I ever had with the gentleman. But um, understanding what he went through um, with his father, who was a coach and whatnot, uh, I realized uh, and just guessing as to why he ended up the way he did. I've been very lucky with with people around me to not have ended up just like that. Absolutely. Now, you are, the next season, 1971, you're drafted by the Minnesota North Stars, and you you head into training camp. It's an interesting camp, and you, again, talk about the about camp, how, how different it is to by today's standards. You're there with some pretty high-profile names, not the least of which is Hall of Famer Gump Worsley, Dennis Hextall, Bill Goldsworthy. However, as you know, there's almost like a uh, two-tier system of guys who had to go through the entire conditioning program and guys who got to abstain. I, back then, it, training camps were divided into the pros and uh, the possibility of being on the big team and then on the other side of the end was was the players that were drafted to be in the minor leagues and take the place of other and John Muckler happened to be the coach of the Cleveland Barons I think it was a time in the mm-hmm. American League and he was running that team so we would always practice either before or after the big guys and uh, we had been a week 10 days at, at training camp and uh, I messed up a drill. I passed to the wrong guy or made a bad pass, and Muckle started yelling and, and get back in line and do it again and do this and do that. And so I did the thing again and messed up again. And he started again to, to scream and shout, and I screamed and shouted back at him. I said, maybe if somebody would show me or tell me what to do, uh, I could do it. And then I don't remember the remark, but he made an offhand uh, that I'm just a goon or whatever. Uh, well, from that point, I just started skating at him. Now, I don't know what I was going to do when I was going to get there. To his credit, he never backed up. But fortunately, about four or five players stepped in between, uh, guided me off the ice to the dressing room. And uh, a couple of minutes later, a trainer came in and said, Mr. Blair, the general manager, would like to see you after you shower up. And sure enough, I had a plane ticket back home. So, uh, yeah, I was... As I said, my worst own enemy on most occasions, but I can look in the mirror and say, hey, I'm glad I did it the way I did it. Absolutely. You're young and making, uh, you know, as we all do, you look back at your life and say, oh, would I have done that different, done that different? But in the end, you're sticking up for yourself and self-respect at that point, in my opinion. But you end up in Muskegon playing for the Mohawks, and you get off to a good start there. You're getting a chance to play. First 25 games or so, uh, smooth sailing, and your your career is getting off to a, a good start in the pro ranks. However, it kind of comes to a screeching halt and a disturbing story of you sticking up for teammate Gary Ford 
and uh, leaving the bench to uh, you know handle business to uh, to help him and looking behind you basically and getting no help whatsoever and something that I think you end up taking a real beating and it's something I think that had a indelible mark on your your life and your career if I'm reading the book correctly but can you recount that story well there's no doubt about what you just mentioned um, we were in Flint, Michigan, and I had been playing regular, and I had just come off the bench, sitting, or off the ice, sitting on the bench, and uh, Gary Ford, one of our better players, went right to Flint, boom, scored scored a goal. It was two or three players now, we're, we're pushing him around at center ice, and I looked out, and nobody was going to his aid, so I, I stood up and told the trainer, open the door. And he said, I can't. And uh, he was a new new to hockey, so he, he counted. He said, no, we can't get another. We'll get a penalty. So open the door. And uh, he wouldn't, so I jumped over. Now, as soon as I jumped over, the entire flint bench jumped over, obviously. Now, what I remember after whatever amount of time went on, uh, after getting pummeled by, by two or three players at least, um, I was up on one knee. Uh, and again, one of my contacts had popped out. So, and I looked at our bench, and there was two of my players still sitting there. And then I looked down at the end, other end of the ice, and I had a player, another player, shooting on our spare goalie. And I said, "Wow, here I am sticking up for these people." And uh, I think from that point on, till. Uh, maybe a decade ago or more, I lost faith in humanity. I, I I couldn't trust anybody or anyone because I said, "Wow, here I am sticking up, helping these guys, and when I need a little help, they're nowhere to be seen." And this wasn't the entire team, obviously, but mm -hmm. it it did put a big question mark into my head at that time. As your career goes on, you're a little bit disillusioned. You're maybe, even though you're in your prime physical self, you're looking maybe retire. There's the CFL still hanging out there. Alan Eagleson enters the scene in the book, believe it or not, uh, representing uh, football, football side of things. And that's an interesting little piece of the book, too. Uh, your father has a, has a bakery. You have an opportunity to work there, but you're young. And uh, again, you have other things in mind. And as things work out, in the early 70s, the World Hockey Association comes on the scene. The franchise is, is the San Francisco Sharks, who later become the Quebec Nordiques. And they contact you and offer you a pretty hefty sum for the time, which according to your book is 20000 a year and a $5,000 signing bonus. And tell us all about how that came about and how you became a, an original Quebec Nordique. Interesting. Um, the Eagleson part of it was that uh, my father had known a couple of business people and who had known Eagleson had just come on the scene as, a, as, a, as an agent. There, there weren't agents before that. And I remember going and meeting with him and he was talking to J.I. Albright, the manager of the Alouettes at the time. And uh, I signed a contract for 8500 Um And Eagleson said... Uh, when you finish training camp, come and see me and we'll see what we can do for it. Now, at training camp, uh, I got a phone call from my father about 10 days or two weeks into it. And he says, uh, are you sitting down? I said, no. 
I says, well, well, you're going to want to hear this. And as you said, the Quebec offer was on the table. Well, I, I was shocked at first. Like you said, the money was unreal. Uh, I went to talk to Sam Echeverry, the coach. I said, uh, Mr. Echeverry, look, I have this chance to go and play with uh, this new league, this new team for this kind of money. Um, but I don't want to quit the football. And uh, he looked at me and said, what are you doing sitting here? I said, get out of here, will you? <laughs> and that more or less firmed it up for me. I'm going to Quebec, and I'm going to be, you know, a player in Quebec. But uh, that's not the way it ended up. So Right, but it's an interesting start. And again, you filled in a lot of blanks for me as a fan your original foray into World Hockey Association, 72-73. Now, this is a brand-new team, all brand-new players, and you were coached by somebody who had who was revered not only in the province of Quebec but all around the hockey world, Maurice Rocket Richard. Now, there have been a lot of stories about his very brief tenure, which amounted to one regular season game. However, you gave some great insight, which was essentially he was good with you on an individual basis for example and a good skills instructor however and i I loved how you pointed this out how he was almost had a fear of public speaking you know they they do these surveys and they they fear of public speaking is like the number one fear people have even more so than Mm -hmm. death so i always like and you mentioned it in the the book maurice Richard walks into a room you could hear a pin drop every he is so revered However, at the same time, he's very uncomfortable in that situation. Talk a little bit about the Rocket and what it was like in your, your brief time where all of your guys, uh, brief time playing for him as a coach. Well, how many people in their lives, Mark, get to see, talk to, and relate to uh, their favorite person or player or actor or whatever in their lives? Uh, this was the chance. Now, when he, as you said, uh, he just loved hockey. Uh, the Canadians hadn't been using him much as anything but somebody who was supposed to go out and give speeches about this and that. He wanted to scout. He wanted to get on the ice and teach. Mm-hmm. He probably would have been one of the better assistant coaches ever, one-on-one with people, because he had that much patience, obviously that much knowledge and skill about the game, The first thing he said to me, uh, I was staying after the practice to practice my backhand shot, and he had come over and looked at my stick and looked at his stick. He said, "Uh, this is the first problem you have, okay? Your stick got a curve. You should use a straight stick. He had been brought up and used a straight stick all his life. But just the, the minutes he spent with me, Uh, And it wasn't a long time, but how he did it so easily, flicking that puck up into the top corner or down halfway through and trying to get me to do the same thing, but with patience, knowing that it would probably take me years, if anything, to get close. It was unreal. It had to be a special thing for someone of that stature to spend that time with you. And unfortunately, that his tenure was extraordinarily brief, as was yours in Quebec in year one. You end up, you talk a little bit about the part of the byproducts of expansion and the World Hockey Association is finding a home for all these players now who don't necessarily make the Major League roster. Uh, you end up in Newfoundland and you find yourself 
in a situation where because pretty much everybody in the league is tough, you don't have to emphasize that part of the game. Of course, you have to start out. You have to drop the gloves and do what you have to do. But you get a chance to actually play hockey in Newfoundland. That's going well. And as fate would have it, our New England Whalers kind of step in the way a little bit because they have an interest in having you as part of their 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 team potentially. And uh, that kind of falls through and you end up back in Quebec, basically uh, on the team, but not quite on the team. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? And, and I don't, I'm sorry about being long-winded with that, but the your experience in Newfoundland and that whole first end of the first year with Quebec. It was um, going to Newfoundland was something out of this world. It reminded me so much of, of uh, the 35, 40 years I spent in Maine. Just great people, quiet, nobody really in a rush to get anywhere real quick, uh, but they knew their hockey, and they expected you to play to the top of your game every time you were out there. And I remember talking to a couple of different coaches saying, why didn't that kid or that guy go and you know, try out for the NHL or, or something? Because mm-hmm. they've got the talent. He says, um, you got to understand, these kids, uh, uh, they're here for life. They, they grow up 18, they get married, have kids, they enjoy their job. They don't want to get off the island. They don't like the mainlanders, people like yourself and whatnot, because <laughs> they feel you're intruding in their lifestyle and trying to change it. So it, it was just, it was an amazing experience and very enjoyable. As a matter of fact, when Quebec phoned, I told the coach, he says, tell him I'm hurt or something. I would rather stay here. Thank mm-hmm. you. Uh, but obviously they couldn't do that. So back in Quebec, I went and uh, didn't get much playing time. And I think I was home in January, still getting paid every two weeks and uh, having a great time. Right. And your career now, the next year, we talked about Maurice Rocket Richard and that experience. The next year, the Quebec is managed by another all-time icon of hockey in in, uh, in the National Hockey League, and particularly in the province of Quebec, none other than the, the tight-fisted Jacques Plante is on the scene. And long and short of it is in 73-74, you do end up in Maine in a situation that would change your life. Uh, you end up staying there, as you said. You, you figure you'd be down there for a short while before you get recalled, which everybody was kind of getting fed that line. You ended up there for three decades, essentially. But talk about the first year in Maine, because as you describe it, again, the North American Hockey League is, is that's what Slapshot was based on. It's, it's wild. But you've got a good relationship with your teammates. Or, or, or good, it seems like you had a real good camaraderie with that team. I think of Paul LaRose, the guy who stands out. I think we shot Brodeur might have been on that squad as well. Yes, he was at the beginning. But mm-hmm. uh, talk a little bit about the, uh, the life in Maine, that, that first year particularly, and, uh, and, and your, your teammates, and also... When you when you talk about that, there's also a key part of this where by the mid season to the end of the season, the team gets a little disillusioned, and maybe the, that uh, that attitude that had carried through the first part of the season kind of dissipated a little bit. But again, talk a little bit of Maine Nordique seventy three seventy four. Well, it, it was obviously a lot of our first times that we were in a minor league situation and uh, obviously most of us thought hey we should be up in the pros and but we got together and Paul Rose was was the the binding issue he he made sure that there was 
no big fights going on in the dressing room. So that in itself was probably part of the reason we were so good. But talent-wise, we were just so far ahead of the rest of the league, uh, except one team, Syracuse, you just beat the living crap out of us. And, and you, know, you, you were intimidated. You were scared. So, so it was hard for our goal scorers to score. But being there in Maine, where, where the fans knew their hockey, appreciated it, and showed up every game loving the effort that we put into it and whatnot, it, it was a good effort. But again, as you said, too, Plant told every one of us, you're going to be the first guy that gets called up if somebody gets hurt. Now, nobody was called up. Richard Broder was called up really early in the season, as was uh, Pierre Roy, and then that was it. After that, uh, I can remember some guys having to go to the local sports star store to buy their own hockey sticks wow. because Quebec didn't want to spend the money to send them down to the minor leagues. And uh, it, it was frustrating. So I think the end of the season wore on so many players that they had just literally given up physically, mentally, emotionally, and every other way. And unfortunately, the season ended bad for us. All right, that's understandable. I was curious about the experience of playing in you, again, the book describes this real well because a lot of people, when they think back of the 1970s, it's it's looked back with the real fondness. But there was another side to the 70s, too. I mean, you had a early part of the 70s. You had a war going on. There was economic struggles all over. And some of these blue-collar towns were really affected. And I love how you talk about how, you know, these fans in places like Johnstown and Syracuse, that was their opportunity to kind of let it all, let a lot of their anger out. A lot of it ended up being towards you a, a lot of in a lot of ways. You were very noticeable. I mean, you had the hair, the look, the role. But what was it like playing in, I know that in Maine, the team was, you were extremely popular there. But what was it like going on the road to the Johnstown, Syracuse, et cetera? Oh, I loved it. You know, uh, being an entertainer, especially in uh, an opposition's rink, was just, they would yell, scream, shout. Um, I can remember, and this is, I don't know if I put this in the book, but this retowned man in uh, New York, because there was a team in New York at the time, and he always had 14, 15 people around him, and they would be screaming at me and yelling. Uh, after the warm-up, I skated over to where he was sitting, and I looked up at the ceiling and looked in the corner and slowly looked in the other corner, and then I managed at that time, the glass wasn't that high, so I could jump, uh, get on to the boards with my skates and talk over the glass. And I screamed up. I said, hey, Fatso, where do they put the crane that drops you into that seat? And then I got up. Now all of his buddies were trying not to laugh and whatnot. And I just waved and skated away. So those incidents were the ones that I loved to you know, get into them with, with fans to, to try to get them to realize that, hey, we're human beings too. We're, you know, we're just not ducks out here to be held at and shot at and screamed at. So, right. but it was enjoyable. You talked about one incident, and I can't remember. It was Johnstown or Syracuse or somewhere else where you were literally chased into the locker room, uh, where you barricaded yourself in, and fans pounding away at the door until finally the the police showed up. Can you recall that story? And this is again hard to believe in the nowadays. Um, 
we had gotten into a fight behind our net, and uh, I somehow ended up on the ice with um, a gentleman by the name of Daryl Knowles, who I the fight was with, and he was holding my arms, and I was holding his arms. He couldn't swing. I couldn't swing. Uh, I was on my back, and he would lift me up and boom, drop me onto the ice as if he was going to hurt me, and I would just pull up and go down softly. Well, one time, his hand left my left hand, and I just whacked him. Well, that was it. He he took off, and he, he started holding his, his face was, was bleeding, and he was making a motion to the crowd skating around that I had kicked him. Oh, right. Uh, well, I got up, and people were throwing stuff at me. Uh, I ended up against the boards to protect myself. One of the referees happened to be a, a fellow Montrealer who used to not only referee in hockey, but uh, was a, a famous umpire in uh, Major League Baseball. And uh, he kept, watch it, watch this side, I'll watch that side. And then somebody grabbed my, as you said, Afro hair and pulled it. Well, I grabbed the arm that was pulling it, turned around, and boom, hit this guy. Down he went into the crowds. Then all of a sudden, people were throwing stuff. People were starting to jump over the ice to come at me. I was back to the bench. Uh, my coach just shook his head and said, are you crazy? And he gave me the key. I went to the dress room, locked the door. The fortunate thing was it was a steel door, a very old building that had a steel lock on it. Uh, but I was sitting there. I took my skates off and they were pounding on the door. I don't know how many people and who, but I started to think, wow, when they get in here, they're going to kill me. So I went into the shower room with about a dozen sticks because the shower entry was very, it wasn't wide. Uh, you could barely fit through there without having to turn sideways. So I figured, well, if they break the door down, uh, they get in here, I can hit enough people with enough sticks, maybe they'll pile up and they won't be able to all get in here. <laughs> uh, Fortunately, uh, a couple of minutes later, a knock on the door, and uh, I went over, and uh, the guy said, hey, it's the cops. Uh, open the door. And I said, yeah, yeah, that'd be a real smart move, right? <laughs> I said, oh, no, I'll show you the badge. And he took the badge and put it underneath, and it looked like a real, uh, what is it called, state police badge. And I let them in, and uh, they mentioned that uh, we've got a little problem here. I said, yes, I think we do. And uh, they sat and they said, look, we'll clear everything out of the way. We know you're staying here overnight because you've got to play somewhere else on the road tomorrow and you're taking off. But we've been assigned to watch you. And I looked and I said, wow, okay. And uh, he said, where do you want to go? Do you want to go back to the hotel? We'll have somebody there overnight watching your room. I said, well, I'd like to go to the bar with my friends. And uh, we walked into the bar after the game was over and everybody had showered up. And everybody, it was like, again, uh, nobody would stop. They looked and you could drop a pin. And, and um, I started waving at people, said, how are you doing? You know, hey, were you at the game tonight? And, and they were just, oh, we're going to get you. And I said, yeah, you may, but it won't be tonight, will it? And I told the two police behind me, so... It was good. It was interesting. <laughs> That's funny. We talk about interesting is you learned a, a one of the, the things about playing in the minor leagues, especially then, was the travel. And obviously, it's all by bus. It's it's 
long. It, it, so the the tough thing for me to envision you're you're a professional hockey player and it's tough to get even you know three or four hours of sleep a night. You're constantly being interrupted, etc. But you learned a technique from our old friend, uh, the uh, rest in peace John Cuniff, and a very I thought this was hilarious. A very innovative way to try to catch some some sleep on, on, on these bus trips. Can you talk to the fans about that a little bit? Um, first, John kind of uh, the only player in Beanpot history. That's uh, the Boston series that they have with Harvard, Northeastern, um, Boston College, and Boston University. Anyway, uh, he won the most valuable player twice. So, uh, his team had uh, dissolved on Cape Cod, and we picked up him uh, as well as a couple of other players. He came on the bus the morning of the first trip we were on, and he had four or five pillows. I said, well, that's interesting. I mean, usually we come on with one pillow, and each player had their own seat. And he asked, because where's my seat? And uh, it was two or three up from where I was sitting on the opposite side. So he put the pillows up above in the luggage rack where they used to have. And we went in and at 1 o'clock we stopped somewhere and had our pregame meal. And then we came back on the bus. And all of a sudden I see John um, stepping on one of the armrests and literally crawling into the luggage rack. Now, you, you... it took you 10 minutes to turn over from being on your back to try to being on your front. And if it, it wasn't very easy, <laughs> but one hand, one pillow behind his neck, one in front of his face, one under his knees, one on top of his knees and the other one on his side. I thought, wow, I'm going to try that. And sure enough, the next game I brought my four or five pillows and it was great. Because after the card game at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, we still had another 10 hours to go or whatever, um, I couldn't sleep in a reclined position. Uh, even if it was pushed back, I could prone was great. And I loved it. it. It was just great. But here's a kicker to that. Uh, one of the guys who's even, uh, you know, a pretty smart guy, comes on the next game with one of those stretchers, those fold-up stretchers that you, you could carry somebody off the ice if he was mm-hmm. hurt. And he ties it to four of the seats. Uh, and he, after the pregame meals, goes on to it and tries to rest. Tries, because he doesn't realize the people in the front of the bus that have to get to the back of the bus to go to the bathroom. Well, do you think they're going to just go under him and not bounce him up and down about 15 times? So <laughs> that only lasted one game. The I can imagine. So you end up in 74-75. You play five games during the regular season, but you actually play in the playoffs for Quebec that year, and you score. Do you recall the your first major league goal with the Nordiques in the playoffs that year? No, I didn't even recall where it was, but I've got a good friend of mine, uh, John Lysak. He has researched my career for whatever reason and uh, showed me uh, a video that they had back then, as well as some paperwork. And and, no, I I couldn't tell you. uh, The only thing I know is it was on John Garrett who we, I had played with shortly during the Memorial Cup because at that time in the Memorial Cup, we were allowed to pick one player from our entire league 
to go to play the rest of the leagues in the Memorial Cup. So John was the player that we picked. But scoring on him, uh, it was always seeing him in, in, in the future. It was a nod and, and kind of a laugh and said, hey, I got one on him. <laughs> the only one probably, but hey. Right. Well, the next year you play about half a season with the Quebec Nordiques who were, for the regular season that year, uh, the the top team in the league, loaded with talent. Rajon Ull, Mark Tardif, we've mentioned, uh, Jean Claude Tremblay, Richard Brodeur, of course, Serge Bernier. Talk a little bit about that team and the the talent on that squad. Well, you know, it, again, and you brought it up uh, briefly. There was a revolution going on from from our my junior days actually and, and is still going on to some degree between the French and the English in the province of Quebec. So there was a lot of um I guess you'd call calls that might be made by English officials or stuff that was going on that we couldn't control because it was beyond our control. But that team was so good. It was just Gordy Howe and his sons happened to be playing in Houston that year. And um, I remember a, a scramble. I was sitting on the bench, and all of a sudden, there's four or five guys trying to get the puck. And Mark Tardif comes out of it with a, a cut that's about a foot and a half long. I'm exaggerating, but he's bleeding all over the place. He comes over to the bench, and after the period's over, I went over and says, Mark, what happened? I don't know, but that sucker, you got that puck right up in my face. And he was talking to Gordie Howe. You know, you you never did anything against Gordie Howe without getting back double-fold. And Gordie knew that Mark was the best player. Let's get him out of the game, and, and we'll see what we have to do. So. Well, and you kept that streak alive because every time we talk to anybody who played with or against Gordy. There's always a story of sending a message who ends up either with a broken bone or a, a stitches required. So you kept the streak alive. Now for yourself, there's another disturbing incident in 75, 76. And that is uh, much to your protest. You are asked to be sent down for one game now, at the time, in 75-76, the North American Hockey League was completely out of control. And one team that was loaded with tough guys and a new one at that point, a guy that I've gotten to know well uh, through my work with the uh, the Hartford Whalers back in the day, one Mr. Jim Troy. So you're, you're sent down for a game reluctantly. It, the whole specter lasts eight seconds, but again, leaves a scar with you. Uh, both physically and emotionally, I, I believe by reading the book properly, that, uh, that that lasted forever. But can you talk a little bit about that whole uh, sordid incident of your one-game stint uh, down there to, to basically fight against uh, the Jaros? Um, it, it takes some time. The year before, at the end, when we were playing in the playoffs with Gordy Howe, uh, I had a, a previous coach of the main Nordics phone me and said, um, is Dale there? And, and Dale happened to be Dale Hogenson, who I was sharing a condo with, and he wasn't. I said, no. I says, okay, meet us on the corner of such and such, and don't tell anybody you're coming. I said, yeah, fine. Uh, I show up on the corner, and this stretch limo, which uh, is before stretch limos happened to be 
built, uh, there it is. I get in and I, I, I think, my God, I'm gonna, this could be the Godfather. Am I going somewhere? And I'm going to get shot or strangled. And, uh, but they take me up north of Quebec City, and this gentleman um, offers me $20,000 to play in the minor leagues. And, and that blew me away. And I said, I, uh, I, would, I would like to say yes, but, but I still have a contract offer that I'm dealing with, with Quebec and, and obviously would rather play in major leagues than the minors. Um, but I told him, I says, uh, I'll let you know as soon as things happen and work out or don't work out with Quebec. Uh, they didn't. I phoned the gentleman and said, hey, uh, I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm staying in Quebec. I've got a contract that says I'm here till the middle of November. They can't send me down. And uh, he says, that's fine. That's good. So uh, both happened to be a team this gentleman had bought. Even though he was part owner of the Nordiques, he, uh, he wanted a hockey team. So he bought both, which was 60 miles south of Quebec City. Uh, we came back from a road trip, and the general manager says, uh, you're going down to Bose tomorrow to play a game. And I said, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not going anywhere. And uh, we sat there for two or three hours uh, arguing back and forth. And finally, he got a hold of the lawyer because I negotiated my own contracts. But after I would go to a lawyer and say, can you read through this and see if, if everything is all right? And, uh, and it was. But he got on the phone with this gentleman lawyer and gave the phone to me after a couple of minutes and said, look, this is a story. If you don't go down tonight, uh, November 20th or whatever the date is, they're going to send you down. You'll never come back. Mm-hmm. Okay, that'll be it. So I figured, okay, I'll go to Bose. And, and I had asked him, why am I going down? I says, well, uh, you know, they, they just want you down. Uh, and I said, uh, for what? He said, well, there's going to be no problems, uh, but you just, and I said, there's going to be no problems. Why do I have to go down? And this team was loaded with goons. I remember going down to Bose. I had the, the trainer from Quebec drive me down, and uh, I was sitting in the stands because Lewiston's bus had broken down at the border. So Bose had to send their bus down to pick up the team and bring them. So we had an hour and a half to kill. Now, at that time, players were forbidden to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, it wasn't a rule that was you could find on paper, but it was a rule that, hey, they wanted the crowd to think these guys, they're, they're at war with each other. They don't, even brothers won't talk to each other. So as the players were coming in, uh, the few of them that I knew were shaking their head at me and just, you know, as if to say, watch out. Uh, I had looked at the score. Uh, they had a score sheet or a program. Uh, they had played five exhibition games they had at least four players with 80 minutes and penalties or more. And I said, wow, this is a pretty tough team. So I asked Paul Rose when he got off, he says, um, Rosie, how do you do in the fights? That's all. You know, I, I said, don't worry, Al, everybody grabs a guy and, and, and there's no problem. So I said, Good, that, that, that's, you know, one-on-one, if I get beat up, that that's fine. And uh, I went in the dressing room with a lot of confidence and I could tell uh, just by looking at these players, said, "Wow, uh, you know, they're nervous. Uh, this is my team, and not realizing that they had played in Maine. Now these players are playing in Bose in their hometown. You don't think they're going to put a show on? Mm-hmm. Sure enough, the game uh, is about to start, and I'm looking out there, and uh, four of these five players that had these penalty minutes are all on the ice. Um, 
I said, well, okay, that's fine. We'll see what happens. They dropped the puck. I pass it to the right wing uh, who disappeared. I went over to get it and saw somebody coming with his gloves off. Dropped my gloves, started to fight him, and then just got it pounded from every side and this side. And I, at one time, saw a skate coming at me. Now, I'm, I'm hoping this person wasn't going to kick me in the face and he just lost his balance, but I don't know that. Um, after whatever amount of time of getting pounded by three players or, or whoever, I get up on one knee and I'm looking around, I'm shaking my head, there's just fights going on everywhere. Um, they bring me back to the bench and I'm sitting there and, and now my ego's been hurt because I've been beat up in front of 2,000 people and whatnot. And across from the, the other teams, from Bosa's bench, comes this gentleman in a shirt and tie and a and, uh, suit coat. And as he gets closer, I can't see because I haven't got my tan contacts again. Um, it looks like the coach of the other team. He gets to the door that's open and I'm sitting right by it. I jump at him and I got him by the throat down in the ice. Now, a couple of my players come over and they're dragging me off. Al, Al, it's the doctor. <laughs> so this this gentleman gets up and he's, whoa, whoa. You know, has this guy gone completely loco? And he kind of checked me out from an arm's distance as, as far away as he could. And uh, that was it. But a little later, about a couple of weeks later, we traded um, one player for another who, who literally quit the Bose team because of that incident, saying that this is the way this team's going to be run. I don't want to be here. And uh, Ron Fogel was the gentleman's name. I since became a, a, a lifelong friend with him. And uh, he said the, the, the owner of the team had walked into the Bose before the game and threw $200 down on the top, saying the first guy that gets Globinski gets that. Now, back then, $200 was a lot of money. So, And it wasn't Maine's fault. They tried their best. They were trying to grab people off me. But as you said back then, uh, when a bench-clearing brawl happened, you never knew what could happen or where. You talked, and you were very uh, articulate in your discussion about the fear factor, something I never appreciated as a fan or even when I worked in the NHL. The the build up and you going into Syracuse or wherever and you you talk about you know, you got to you got to face Billy Goldthorpe you got to face Gary Settler and you talk about Gary you have this like you have this imaginary conversation with yourself you talk about Gary being bitter because his brother had all the talent he's down there mm -hmm. fighting and that was it was very funny you talk about Nick Fatiu uh, a, a player who you actually could have. Uh, delivered a, uh, a knockout blow to, but held back at that code we talked about. I thought that was great. But talk a little bit about that that buildup of of time. It's, you know, let's say it's Monday, and you got you know you have a big weekend coming up. You know they're going to be gunning for you. And uh, wh wh what factor does fear play in all that? Well, and I'm talking for myself. I'm not talking for all the other people who fought and, and did the job that, that I did. But... Um, Fear has got to, it's in every human being. I mean, uh, we see so much violence on TV and on the movie screen, uh, but we very rarely are involved with fear itself right in front of you. Um, 
to, to go into a bar and have somebody confront you and, and you have to think, oh, am I going to stand here and, and, and start fighting or am I going to leave or talk my way out of it? Uh, but I, I always thought maybe I'm the only one that got, is getting scared. Um, so I don't know how many years ago, but I talked, phoned and talked to the toughest player that I knew ever played hockey, this gentleman, Steve Sutherland from uh, Quebec. Right, right. And uh, I said, Sudsy, were you ever afraid before a fight? And he actually broke out laughing. And he said, Al, think of all the time we've wasted being afraid. Because, like you said, I would start on Syracuse on Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, I was out getting hammered just trying to get that thinking out of my head and falling asleep. And, and you know, it, it was one of those uh, survival things, I guess. But you, you can't put us anywhere near a soldier or even a, a, the, the fire department or the police. But there certainly is a lot of fear, or was. It's getting much better now in the game of hockey. No question. One player that I've gotten to know well, one of our show guests you talk about was Paul Stewart, and it was kind of a humorous humorous story where you kind of hand him his lunch one time, but Paul being Paul, uh, comes back and uh, just wants to get the school board in his mind even, and fulfill his end of the obligation. Can you tell us a little bit about your, uh, your altercation with Paul Stewart? I had, uh, and we we have a little difference of opinion, and, and he has a book, I have a book. Uh, my memory of it, it was, uh, he was yelling and yakking at me, and he jumped over, and he came at me, and I dropped him with one punch. And as he was down, he pointed, he says, I'll get you back. And I said, won't be today. Well, it didn't. we both got thrown out of the game. Well, sure enough, a couple of weeks later, um, we're playing in Binghamton, where Stewie is, and we're skating around in a pregame warm-up, and I can see him looking at me, and then you know, I'm hey, so I, I know I'm going to fight him at some given point. All of a sudden, he's at center ice, and next time I come around, he's got his gloves off, and he's just, okay, let's go. And I go, what? I says, let's go. I said, fine. I throw my gloves down. We're just wailing on each other. I don't know for how long, it, for as long as it took the referees to get out of their dressing room and come out and break us up. And as they break us up, Stewie goes, there, I got your back. And I'm looking at him, and I says, Stewie, I knocked you down. I just saw it. I got your back. I came back and fought you again. Said, That's fine. Great. You know, and, but Stewie being Stewie and, and uh, hey, very intelligent person, very tough person, one of the, the only American ever to have refereed a thousand games in the NHL, never mind played in the NHL and WHA. So right. he's got a lot to stand for. He does, and he has a real, because of his family, first of all, but just in general, a real appreciation and uh, a love for the game of hockey. He's a real, he's a real historian <laughs> as well, in addition to being a, a, quite an entertainer to say the least, oh, but um, oh, Alan, when you, you've, you've recounted numerous stories here of times when you received concussions or other, other head trauma during your playing career, and my question is, uh, did you feel any residual effects after your career from those types of head injuries? Um, I'm still feeling them and will probably 
always feel them. And, and uh, that's nobody's fault but my own. I, I chose to do what I did, and I did it. Uh, I take 15 pills a day to keep me somewhat normal. I've seen uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, neurologists, everybody and anybody that possibly could help. Now, these people are very intelligent, obviously, but they know about two inches more about the brain than you and I do. It's mm -hmm. so complex. Uh, and my idea of the book is to stop violence at a young age. There's no way kids under the age, and I'll go as far as 18 now, should be playing contact sports. And there's no reason for them to do so. They can play flag football, touch football, non-contact hockey, and still watch the game being played on TV at the professional level and learn. At 18, you're a lot more open and understanding to listen to somebody and do what they say and how they say it than you are at six, seven, or eight years old. So we're damaging a lot of brains at a young age that we don't have to, and we shouldn't be. But the NHL and the NFL, obviously, these are multi-million billionaires. Uh, they don't want to hear anything like that. They want their sports promoted in a positive way, and that's the way we are in North America. Absolutely. You get that message across well in the book also. But the book has, as I said, it, it starts out with it was raw, honest. You were brutally honest with yourself and with the reader. And I love that part of the book. And we can't get into it because we'd be here for another two hours. But the <laughs> the fact of the matter is when you buy this book and we, we have the instructions to purchase the note in the in the, purchase the book in the show notes and on the website. When you purchase this, you'll be gripped by the beginning and you get a real picture of Alan's life and how it led to his career in pro hockey. But Alan, this book ends on a on a positive note and a great story, how you reconvene um, with uh, an old acquaintance of yours and how your family kind of comes together and you seem to be really at peace uh, with yourself and your life. Talk a little bit about life with Alan Glavensky today. Well, again, Mark, I'm the luckiest person in the world. Um, it was about 12 years ago, I was down in Maine and uh, drinking myself into the grave, if not ready to do other things to get there. Uh, my best friend here, Greenfield Park, Dave Maine, uh, came down with his family because uh, one of his boys were playing for a team that, at the time, uh, Lewiston, Maine had a team in the Quebec Junior League, and I was doing the color of it. So I took the game off and sat with Dave and uh, watched his son, who was a very good hockey player, but they wanted him to be like me, a fighter. So he wisely got out of it, went to college, and is now doing very well. But David mentioned a couple times during the game that, uh, hey, you know, Carol's living back at home. And it didn't really settle in my mind because I was concentrating on the game until Tuesday or Wednesday. And I said, did he say Carol was living back at home? Now, this is a woman that uh, I had gone to high school with, and she had a crush on me. But, uh, again, my ego was, was bigger than the forum. And, uh, you know, I was anything that moved, I was running at. And uh, I had talked to her a little bit, and then 
started to walk down the hallway of this brand new school that we were at, and another woman got right in my face and put her finger almost on my nose and said, don't you even didn't think about it. And I, I, I'm going, wow, I mean, what's this? I've never, I'm not going to hit a woman. And she said, that's my sister, and you're not going to screw her up. So I stayed away from Carol. But with Dave, my good friend, saying Carol's living back at home, uh, I said, get her phone number. And sure enough, uh, I got the courage enough a couple of days later, made the phone call, and she answered. And I said, I've got two questions, Carol. Um, are you boy? Are you married? And she says, no. I says, do you have a boyfriend? And she says, no, I don't. I says, great. We can at least try to start a relationship. And uh, hey, as I say, it's been a wonderful past 12 years. I, I now uh, don't have a suicidal thought in my mind whatsoever because I feel so good about life and, and the people in it that I have to lean against and love. Uh, it's great. Well, it was a great way to end the book, a great way to end our interview today. I think you have a movie here. But in, in, in the meantime, it's, it's like I said, it's incredibly engrossing. As I've said many times here to our fans, we have uh, a loyal fan base and a large one who really appreciates hockey from that era. And as I said, this is a book that really captures it beautifully and goes so much more into life in general. So, Alan, thanks so much for spending the time with us today. Greatly appreciated. And good luck with the book. Again, instructions on how to purchase the book are on the website, which we'll direct everybody to. But in the meantime, really want to thank you for spending the time and look forward to talking to you again soon. It, it, the thanks go to you, Mark, and I really appreciate it. Thanks, Alan. Have a wonderful life, and everybody out there the same. Thank you for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. If you enjoy listening to the show, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes. This helps make our podcast more visible and accessible to hockey fans around the world. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please contact me at prohockeyalumni.org or via social media at prohockeyalumni. The Pro Hockey Alumni greatly appreciates your support.